just to cover with a small crew, obviously, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so if you haven't realized yet, uh, Pastor Gary's not here. And for those of you who have realized and didn't leave the building, I really appreciate that. Um, truth is that he and Angie are serving currently as prayerful road warriors en route back now from Bozeman, Montana, which is where so many people go in January. Um, but their mission along the way has um, been in prayerful support of the University of Georgia football team. And we will find out um, how successful those prayers were sometime later tomorrow night. Um, for those of you who may not know me, for our two visitors over here, um, <laughs> my name is Thomas Bates, and I serve as the community pastor here at Community Bible Church. And um, Gary and I reached an agreement a while back that he said, um, well, we just determined together that I would be able to speak on Sundays in any month that began with J, ended with Y, and had an average temperature of less than 45 degrees. So here we are. Um, and actually, I enjoy these opportunities. I think some people think I must be petrified, and, and I got over that years ago. Um, and I actually enjoy the chance to share perspective on a somewhat rare basis, but meaningful to me to be able to share what God's been telling me and often what God has been telling me from you. Um, so this is a, a terrific opportunity. And also, for those of you who may not know me very well, a chance to offer a, a brief introduction of sorts every time I do this. Um, and just so you know, I am married. Uh, my wife, Lisa, here on the front row. We have three children and three spouses, well, two spouses and, and significant other, um, and then we have three grandchildren, um, and none of them are here. So we're going to move on from that, and I'm going to tell you about two other important individuals in our family, and those are our two dogs. So yeah, there they are. This is um, Obadiah and Amos. And many of you have heard stories about these two, and there are many. Um, and I'll just answer a couple of qu questions. Yes, they do shed. And yes, they were named after the minor prophets, Amos and Obadiah. And no, that has absolutely no bearing on their temperance and their behavior. And um, they are brothers, they, um, they're soon to be five years old. Next month, they'll be five. And their breed background is they're a mix between Husky and Great Pyrenees. The good news for, um, for Amos and Obi, that we call him for short, is that we live adjacent to the Nantahala National Forest. Some of you have heard these stories before. And that... Um, those roughly 10,000 plus acres are available to Amos and Obi to wander. And the problem is that they do just that. And they are out and about on a fairly regular basis exploring what they believe to be their territory. And Lisa and I will most every day walk with them on some of the back trails of the forest 
And at some point in time, we can pretty much guarantee that they will catch a scent either on the ground or in the air. And at that moment, we know we have roughly five seconds to apprehend them or they will take off. And I mean off, like for hours or longer at a time. And for this reason, we often refer to them as our prodigal pups because they have this tendency to wander. And um, what I've realized is that the problem exists in conflicting wills. And their wills, Amos and Obadiah's wills, are probably best captured in the theme of the Jack London novel, uh, Call of the Wild. And that's, that's how they do what they do. Um, my perspective, my will, would be based more on the 1960s sitcom, family sitcom, Father Knows Best. And so between those two perspectives, there is a little bit of a conflict. And I wanted to mention just briefly, this word prodigal is, is interesting as I explore this. We use it in the Christian community. We've kind of co-opted this word to mean wandering or wayward. And, um, and I'll show you what happens when these guys wander. This is how they come back often. And... You really can't tell this, but they are truly covered head to toe with crusted mud. And so usually that means they sit on the porch. You can tell Obi's pretty well, you know, guilty just by his, his view there. But, he, um, but the prodigal nature is really not one of, of way, or it's not one of wandering or um, waywardness. Prodigal actually means wasteful or indulgent or extravagant, which actually does relate more to the, um, the parable of the, of the prodigal son, as we think that's what he actually experienced or lived through was a wastefulness and extravagance and an indulgence that was all self-oriented. And the truth is we all, using this Christian co-opted definition of prodigal, we all know of or may actually know a prodigal, maybe a child of ours, maybe a child of a friend, perhaps even ourselves, maybe especially ourselves. But the truth is this, that we all, like sheep and like Amos and Obi, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. And the other truth is that I think I could say this for you and for me, that, that our desire is to better understand God's will and then to be, better be able to, to actually accomplish that. I want to be able to just not just know God's will, I want to be able to do it. The question is How? How do we actually go about that? So today, we're going to explore a passage together, um, and we're going to move from the last time we gathered together in this sanctuary was um, Christmas Eve service, and that was a while back. So we're going to move from Christmas to the cross all at once. And I know you think, well, that's a pretty grand leap, but 
this is purposeful because there's a message, I think, for all of us as we enter into this new year that relates to God's will and how we best implement it. Because I want God's will in my life. I want to be able to put that into action. And based on what I have heard from you, either in conversation or in counseling or whatever our encounters would be, I, I believe that you feel very much the same way. So that's what we're going to do today is look at a passage in Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 20 or 39 through 44, but we're not going to go immediately there. You can actually pull that back for a second because um, I don't want you to be distracted. I want to ask a couple of quick questions. Do you ever wonder about the conversations that Jesus has directly with God? And, and I know many of us have Bibles that are red letter Bibles that, that show the words of Christ in red. And that's wonderful. But I think there should be a special designation for those conversations that Jesus has directly with God himself. Maybe there could one day be a purple letter um, edition that would include those conversations in purple that would show the conversations, the, the, um, the times that Jesus spoke directly to God himself. Scholars would, would say that there are three very notable moments that, that those conversations occurred, the purple letter um, conversations between Christ and, and God. And interestingly, all three of those occur while he is on the cross. And these are familiar passages as you hear these. The first is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second follows closely and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the third, toward the very end, when he says, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Well, I would suggest that today, as we study this passage in Luke, that there is actually a fourth that would qualify as a purple letter inclusion in the conversation between um, Jesus and God. And it occurs as Jesus and his disciples are leaving the upper room after having shared the, uh, the Last Supper in a teaching related to the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ being sacrificed. And they're en route or moving to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And they're going there for the express purpose of prayer. And before we take another step in that direction, I would just simply ask that we bow our heads together. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to gather in this place together for fellowship, but also to hear from you and in your truth and from your word. Lord, we pray that whatever it is that comes today from you that is true, Lord, that those would be quickened and really emblazoned upon our hearts and in our minds. And for anything, Lord, that is not of you, Lord, I pray that you would erase it, eliminate it so that we might focus exclusively on what you have for us this day that is important to keep in mind, to, to embody, and to put into action. Lord, we thank you 
for your presence and for your ministry to us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to read now, if we could put Luke 22:39 back on the screen. Read with me. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So I want to break this down a little bit into some of its component parts, and in so doing, hopefully have a chance to better understand the purpose of going to the garden what was the intent, and how did it potentially change the disciples and rearrange the path that, that Christ was, was on at, at this particular time? First, we see that Jesus went out. It's a fairly simple yet significant preposition that means to go away. And I think what's unique about this, if, if you'll put the map up that shows the city of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, and I realize this is kind of small, this is going to test all of our, our reading abilities, but at the bottom left quadrant, you'll see the place where it says Last Supper, and it shows the arrow up. This is the location where the disciples in Christ are coming from, from within uh, Jerusalem, and they're moving in a direction northeast to the next slide shows a zero in of that Tri or the, um, the rectangle there in green, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it's a distance that has to be walked from the upper room in that location to this location, the Garden of Gethsemane, at the base of uh, the Mount of Olives. So you can see the Mount of Olives, which is referenced as the destination in some of, um, of the Gospels, but the Garden of Gethsemane is mentioned specifically in, in others. And what's not shown here at the top of the Mount of Olives is where the tour bus parking takes place. Because obviously there weren't tour buses then, but there were tour buses three years ago when Lisa and I had the privilege of joining uh, Pastor Gary and his wife Angie as we went to Israel together with about 35 other people. And it was a phenomenal trip, one that I would encourage highly. If you haven't been, try to go because it will change your perspective. It will change this from a map to a place of incredible significance. And so we came off of our, our bus at the top of the Mount of Olives and walked down a fairly steep path and uh, a, really a road that was fairly narrow, but, but steeply leading down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we arrived there. It was a day that was was pretty gloomy, a lot like today, in fact. It was rainy, it was cold, um, it wasn't real comfortable to be out and about, but we all, 30-some-odd of us, walked through a small doorway in a wall and entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we entered, 
we were immediately aware that this is a private walled garden. It was very private, very secluded. And there were so many olive trees, um, and certainly they could be counted, but I just was amazed at the, the sheer number of the olive trees inside this garden area. And the, the purpose, I think, this word out, that Jesus went out, is significant because on the map, again, when you look at, at moving from the position of the, the Last Supper in the upper room up to this further distance, uh, was quite quite a distance. And it certainly was not the most efficient way to go about praying together. After all, Jesus had his disciples all together congregated in the upper room. Why not just simply pray together there? Save Judas, who left after the, the Lord's Supper to do what he was supposed to do, all of the other disciples were there. Why not just do the more efficient thing and gather together and pray there? Well, the reason is that Christ and God are not so worried about efficiency. They are concerned about effectiveness. And this is the, the concept of this is, is captured well in, in the passage from James chapter 5, verse 16, that says that, the effective or effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And certainly we have a righteous man in Christ. We have a fervency in prayer that, that will prove to be effective. So this, this going out was purposeful because it served a purpose and an intention that went beyond just mere efficiency. So Jesus went out as usual, if we look back at the, the scripture. And this is worth noting too. This was a familiar territory, both in place in the Garden of Gethsemane, because elsewhere in scripture it says that this was a place that they actually visited often. So the, the disciples and Christ were familiar with this particular garden, and they had favor enough with the owner to be able to visit it, to go there and to pray but also, as usual, could relate to the act of praying. Certainly, Jesus, as a righteous person, the Son of God, was very familiar with what it meant to pray. And so the, the four or so conversations that might be recorded in purple letters, there were untold other purple-lettered conversations that had taken place between Jesus and God. So with these in mind, ask yourself this question. So Jesus went out purposely with intention as usual to this place, as usual to pray. Ask yourself this. Is prayer a familiar and usual pattern in our lives? Or do we reserve prayers for life's crises? Are we in constant and continuous communication and conversation with God? How many purple-lettered conversations do you and I share on a regular basis with God? Next, we see that his disciples followed him. And this really isn't that significant, except that we're, we're recognizing they're leaving the upper room, they're leaving the sermon that had just occurred 
um, in that, that space, the teaching that they're leaving, they're following Christ to his next destination, as they did for the previous three years. They followed. It's what they were called to do. They were actually disciples, and so this was an expectation. What I think is maybe not so clear, um, and hopefully we are also, would consider ourselves to be followers. I would like to think of myself as a follower of Christ, as I know many of you might refer to yourself that way. But do you realize this? That there's, there are those who follow you. You have followers. I have followers. My children, my grandchildren, my spouse, my friends, brothers and sisters. These are people who are following our actions, our attitudes, our responses, our reactions, and our habits. They're watching our example and our our demonstrations of our priorities, our anxieties, and our faith. Every day, this is going on around us, and there is a watching world that is following our lead. Next is an instruction directly from Jesus to the disciples, where he says, pray that you would not fall into temptation. You see, Jesus knew what was to come for himself and for his disciples. He knew it was going to be hard. And he knew that they would be tempted to take shortcuts or possibly to to find a path of their own, which actually occurred for most every one of them that they fell away during this time of testing over the next day or two. So Jesus was aware of what this meant. And we're reminded that in the first garden, in the Garden of Eden, that man was also tempted there. But man did fall in that encounter. Similarly, we should be prayerfully prepared for the temptations that we may face that result in either us taking shortcuts or taking paths of our own that would lead us away from the path, the will that God would intend for us to follow. So there's a mindfulness that each of us should have with regard to not falling into temptation. Next, we see that he knelt down and prayed. And that may seem also insignificant, except that what I've learned is the custom of prayer, much of the time, at that time, at the time of Christ, was not so much to kneel down, but it was to stand upright, to look to heaven with eyes open and express the prayer to God. So the fact that Jesus would kneel down in demonstration to his disciples who are watching, who are still following, and they're watching him do this. This is a physical act, a position or a posture of submission. And this is critical in this this whole passage in terms of, of understanding and then moving into God's will. And it's in this position of submittedness that Jesus says these words. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. 
yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays with a humbly submitted precondition, if you are willing. And in so doing, Jesus expresses a personal preference or a desire that is honest. He's saying, if there's a different way that we could do this, could we do that? But he quickly follows and says, not my will, but yours. But I think it's fascinating and important to understand that Jesus in this moment of honesty and transparency before God and before his disciples is essentially saying, take this cup, take this burden, take this responsibility, take this this pending pain and suffering and take it from me if it's possible, but not my will, but yours be done. Here, the humanity of Christ is confirmed. And it's important to understand that, yes, Jesus is simultaneously man and God. But that doesn't make him miraculously immune from pain and and suffering and struggle. In fact, in verse 44, we see these words, that he was in anguish. Or some translations say agony. Because Jesus was anticipating perhaps the physical pain that was to come. But also perhaps he was anticipating the separation between himself and God that had never occurred before during these 33 years. He had never experienced that kind of separation. So he knew, he was anticipating this was going to be really challenging. And there was so much anguish, so much agony in this moment that he actually perspired blood. I don't know about you, but I've never experienced that level of stress before. But it makes real the the fact that Jesus was going through something that was incredibly challenging. But there's good news in this, and I want to share that, that the fact that Jesus knew anguish and knew agony means that he is keenly aware of the same in our lives. He knows when we are in anguish. He knows when we're in agony. He knows when we're experiencing stress and pain. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, it says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. This is good news for you and me because he meets us in these pivot points of our lives where we are facing tragedy, pain, struggle, suffering, stress, whatever it may be. Christ meets us in that moment, takes our hand, and is willing to lead us in the way that God would have us to go. And we have someone leading who knows the way. He knows that path. He has endured that struggle, that suffering, that agony. He knows and understands our turmoil, our grief, and our heartaches. He understands the fear of a diagnosis of lymphoma. 
he understands the grief associated with losing a child. He understands the devastation of divorce. He gets our brokenness and our distress. He understands that we have our own desired preferences and desires. And he also understands that we may prefer multiple options as opposed to the singular option of God's will. He's experienced all of this himself. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I should have mentioned earlier that the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means olive press. And in understanding this, there is perhaps some better understanding of why Jesus would take the less efficient path to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane as opposed to just simply staying in the upper room. You see that olives, in order to serve their function to make olive oil, have to be crushed. They have to be pressed in order to make the olive oil. And that olive oil, in turn, then either becomes food to be consumed or an anointing uh, oil to be able to be used as a blessing. Realize that the same is true of Christ. That Christ was similarly pressed and crushed. And he shed his blood both in the garden interestingly, through the drops of blood that he is perspiring, but obviously also on the cross itself. He shed his blood as an anointing for our forgiveness and our salvation. And then subsequently as an anointing, as a precursor for the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit that was yet to come. In this second garden, In contrast with the first, Christ is committed to proceed according to God's will. By doing so, and hear this, by doing so, Christ restores the opportunity that was lost in the first garden. He reestablishes God's perfect plan and relationship between himself and us. This is happening in the second garden. The garden of Gethsemane was a huge pivot point in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, where Christ prayerfully submits to the will of God. He submits in the garden to the cross that leads to his sacrificial death and then subsequently to our forgiveness and our salvation from our sins. Yes, the crucifixion occurred at the cross, but the commitment to go to the cross occurred at the pivot point of the garden. In this brief season of New Year's resolutions, many of us have boldly declared um, new commitments with rekindled 
discipline and perhaps short-willed live or short-lived willpower. The good news is that I'm still doing my push-ups and my sit-ups. I haven't eaten a Pop-Tart since January 1, but I'm here to tell you that turkey bacon is not the same. But hear this, in, in contrast to our best efforts, hear the words of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Instead of our self-discipline, God desires our discipleship. Instead of flexing the muscles of our willpower, God is asking us to submit to his power, his authority, and his will. He asks us to exchange our determination to accomplish our plan instead for a desire to seek him and to follow his will. The truth is this, if I'm honest as I stand here before you today, that I often ask God to hear my prayer. I ask him to endorse my plan, and I ask him to accomplish my will. But this is the important part that I realize too, when I do those things, I am essentially asking that God follow me. Do you hear that? That I would be so bold as to ask God to follow me instead of me committing to follow him. As we enter the pivot points of our life that um, either are occurring or have occurred, we have experienced them, or we are experiencing them, or we will be at some point. This guaranteed. Pivot points will occur. <laughs> He calls us to pray, lest we fall. He calls us to submit to his perfect will. And he asks us instead to rely not on our imperfect will, but to rely on the perfection of his will, his singular perfect will for us. And the truth is, once we have submitted to God's will, then submitting all of the rest of the things in our lives actually follow quite easily. The will is somewhat intangible, and we hold on to other things also, not just our will, but we hold on to other things pretty tightly, if you think about it. But if we are willing to submit and give over our will, then what can follow next is profoundly powerful because we can say, not my will. We can also say, not my diagnosis. Not my marriage. 
not my child, not my life. You see, because it's all his. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we can act in accordance with a will that is perfect and that we cannot improve upon. The sooner we realize this, the sooner we are free. And so if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Not my will, but yours be done.